Welcome back to the program. You know, sometimes there's a term or a phrase that gets out there in the public consciousness and it begins to be used in such ways and it becomes so loaded that it almost becomes meaningless. And to my mind, the term cancel culture has now become so loaded is to be almost meaningless because it is being employed and weaponized by various factions, both on the left and on the right. The right especially uses this. I mean, if you just spend 15 minutes watching Fox, if you ever turn on Tucker Carlson, for example, inevitably you're going to hear something about cancel culture, the most recent one. Of course, the the, the right wing was outraged because of the pulling of some Dr. Seuss books. You recall that. Uh, but, of course, that was initiated by the actual um, estate of the late author who realized that they had a number of books, six, in the publishing, um, in their repertoire that had images that were just simply no longer acceptable in a child's book. And what happened was, well, it was all, this was all spun out and towards, oh, well, they're going to take away our green eggs and ham. And that's not one of the titles that is involved. And so quickly we see this whole, you know, cancel culture thing spun out and weaponized. But it is still a real thing in terms of a kind of a gotcha mentality that is out there right now. And it especially is amongst younger people, I think. I think that that is, there, there is a, a, a lack of understanding about how people can evolve and change and that we are not set in our own opinions and ways. I am not a concrete slab. I am a moldable piece of clay. And I would hate to think that whatever I believed when I was a teenager, when I was 17, 18, whatever I thought, whatever little quip I put out there would be used and I would be judged for what I believed then. Because I'm telling you, 18-year-old Alan Carter needed some education and some instruction in the world. And I'm fortunate that I got it. And I'm fortunate that I grew up at a time when I wasn't just putting my random thoughts out there for the world to see on social media so that 10, 15 years later, it could come back. And that is where we are going with our next story. Alexei McCammond has resigned as editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue even before she began the job. Teen Vogue staff members had publicly condemned racist and homophobic tweets that Ms. McCammond had posted a decade ago. And those tweets include comments on the appearance of Asian features, derogatory stereotypes about Asians. These were not good tweets. There were slurs against gays. Now, Ms. McCammond had apologized for these tweets in 2019 and had deleted them, but screenshots of the tweets were recirculated on social media after she was hired to be in charge of Teen Vogue. And then yesterday, the announcement that she is resigning before even beginning the job. My next guest is a journalist a finance and economics reporter, originally from Toronto, now living in New York City. Welcome, Karen Ho. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with 
what has happened and just your assessment of what has happened with Ms. McCam and, and the reaction to her initial hiring and then her resignation. I think it's really important to distinguish um, oftentimes the use of the phrase cancel culture is actually in response to real calls for accountability, not necessarily someone losing their job, but really being held responsible for their past actions or even their most recent actions. Uh, to your point, uh, she also didn't just make slurs against uh, gay people. She made derogatory comments towards Asian Americans. And I think to your point regarding accountability for things that people said and did when they were teenagers, her leadership role was at a publication that really advocates for greater respect and understanding of what teens can accomplish and how they can be incredibly thoughtful and you know involved in business or in politics or even in terms of uh, their own advocacy efforts regarding things like environmental uh, action and uh, also for human rights or even uh, mass shootings in the United States. And so I think that is the real distinction. Um, I actually think that in this particular case, there was a failure of management. Uh, you know, like whenever there's a high-profile role in finance or economics uh, or even in media, there's often a crisis communications. There's a real uh, research into references, uh, what they've published online, and that didn't seem to happen in this case. And it wasn't just the fact that McCammond is a, a black woman who had a pretty, who was already in the news for, uh, I would say, unfavorable reasons related mm. to her personal life. But I think it's the fact that there were qualified people at the organization, including the past editor in chief, who was also a black woman, who were who either expressed their dissent or their uncertainty regarding her nomination to the role because of her lack of previous management or editing experience. So, and I so think Karen, that's your, the your, your point, that I really think about. Your, your point here being that, it, that and I agree 100% that any time we start talking about these sort of things, we have to look at it in an individual case, and that what is this particular case we are looking at? And your, your contention is here is that this is a leadership of Teen Vogue, and so therefore that there is a, it, it's public-facing, and so that the past and what has been tweeted, especially these, uh, these horrible anti-Asian-American uh, tweets, that that had to be taken into account, and management did not do it. Yeah, and I mean, it's the timing of it, right? It's not just the massacre that happened in the Atlanta area this past week. There had been consistently throughout most of the pandemic in Canada and the United States a rising amount of anti-Asian violence and hate crimes, right, in Asian communities and uh, towards Asian individuals. And so this was a particularly sensitive moment for those kinds of comments to resurface um, because, you know, there are staff at Condé Nast, not just at Teen Vogue, that would be working closely with Alexi. And I think it's very difficult to, uh, th there was either insufficient action or a demonstration that she would be able to move forward and say, you know, not just that she was, like you said, she had changed significantly since she had first made those comments, but what she would do to either amplify or indicate that uh, she no longer felt that way and she really understood basically the pain of what Asian Americans are going through right now, especially young 
uh, readers of Teen Vogue who happen to also be Asian American, if that makes sense. It does. Um, can we just can we address the the idea of the sort of digital trail that you know younger generations have left uh, and what that might mean to their future employment? Sure. Um, I think the thing about it is though. Uh, even before uh, there was the internet, like I think there's definitely, I think there's a real, there's also a real need for media literacy. A lot of young people, uh, like the joke is that they know more about how to do transitions on TikTok mm-hmm. and really thinking about, you know, where those TikToks can be downloaded or uh, where they're going to travel to. And I think the thing is, Uh, modern society really places so much effort on individual responsibility rather than the platforms that enable a lot of this information to be resurfaced or in terms of the lack of media literacy that is taught in schools or conversations between parents and their teenagers. I think that's the thing that's really, really hard is, uh, like you said, teenagers don't make lots of mistakes. They say a lot of terrible, stupid things while they're trying to figure things out. But the idea that we're going to put the same responsibility on them and also hold them to be responsible for things like movements on gun control and also uh, climate change is, is, you know, I think that's really, really hard. You know, like we task young people with playing on competitive sports teams. You know, uh, Alexi made those comments at the same age that we send uh, teenagers to, you know, the IIHF or, you know, like applying to university. So I think it's it's really hard on the back and forth. Um, I think, like I said, it's really important to remember that at that age that you mentioned, 18, um, the, the converse is that people can be really, really thoughtful at that age as well. Like young people right. um, can be really, really thoughtful and uh and have really serious thoughts regarding issues that are really important. But regarding the digital trail, I think it's also about the platforms, right? Like what is published on Facebook, what is published on Twitter or TikTok or or Snapchat, you know, there is still, uh, I think, like I said, the focus is on individual responsibility rather than data security, the lack of regulation. And also, like I said, in terms of, uh, we don't really teach media literacy in schools, right, regarding, like, how uh, what you do online uh, can uh, hurt you in a way that is unintentional and also in a way that is often unfair, uh, even if it's um, – especially if you are a, a woman and uh, non-white. What what do you mean by the just that last bit? Karen Ho, by the way, I was speaking with Karen Ho, finance and economics reporter. Just just if you could expand on that last moment, that last point. So, so I so it's important to understand that I, I report on economics and I've also done a lot of research in management and in the media, and uh, especially non-white women like Alexi McCannon, you're basically given fewer chances to recover from failure and opportunities to succeed in the workplace, not just in media. Um, and so I think the thing is. Uh, there is a phrase that was popularized in a show about being twice as good. And that's the thing that's very, very hard for someone in Alexi's position is that, like, uh, people who look like me, uh, like Asian women, not other uh, non-white women, we are told that you just don't get as many chances to screw up very publicly. 
and I think that's the thing that I, I am mindful of when you talk about, um, you know, this digital trail. Like, I remember joining Twitter in, I think, 2009 or 2010, and already thinking back then, uh, I, I need to make sure I don't tweet anything that could get me potentially, uh, that could uh, turn off a hiring manager uh, down the line. Um, and I think about that all the time. And also, like, what do I say in media interviews like this? And I advise that to my uh, student mentees all the time. And it's very stressful, but I also know that I, I am not given as long of a runway as if I was, uh, say, uh, a young white guy from Toronto named Steve, <laughs> who is six foot two. Uh, that's just what the, the research has taught me over and over again and the case studies. And there is a lot of management research showing this as well in terms of who gets opportunities to recover from these sorts of uh, public PR disasters. Karen, we have to leave it there, but uh, fascinating perspective, and I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing today on the program. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. That is Karen Ho, who is a finance and economics reporter. You can see her work on Quartz at QZ, a global news and insights for a new generation of business leaders. A fascinating conversation there.